The following podcast is a part of RadioMisfits.com. And now it's time for the Mr. Nelson Show. Welcome to another episode of the Mr. Nelson Show. Episode 13. Well, let's hope it's not an unlucky one. Well, the year of 2015 is coming to an end, and so the Washington Post decided to publish their 12 biggest whoppers of 2015. And by whoppers, of course, they mean lies. They just don't have the stones to actually use the word. Anyway, uh, they listed it in rank uh, from 12 to 1. So they started off with Rand Paul. And here's his quote. A man was put in prison for conspiracy just for having dirt on his land. Sure, the Kentucky senator was wrong about this. But Paul hasn't been relevant on the national stage for the better part of 2016. R.I.P. his presidential ambitions, so I find it hard to get too worked up about dirt. Well, what was the reference to where this was false? Oh, well, I have to take their word for it. Anyway, number 11. John Kerry said, With Al Gore, I helped organize the first hearings on the Senate on climate change in 1988. <laughs> I don't know if I'd boast about that. Al Gore was saying the sea levels would rise 20 feet, according to the UN, when the UN actually said 20 inches. <laughs> There's a big difference between an inch and a foot. Anyway, uh, a classic example of credit hogging here by the Secretary of State. What's remarkable is that even though it's clear that Kerry isn't going to be running for any more offices, he still feels the need to plump up what is, by any reckoning, a very impressive resume. Oh, God, please, a very impressive resume. Jeez, Louise. Yeah, yeah. Stabbing your own fellow soldiers in the back, huh? Yeah. <laughs> That's really impressive. Anyway, on this list, though, this doesn't even crack the top ten. Yeah, whatever. Uh, number nine, uh, Chris Murphy. Since Sandy Hook, there has been a school shooting on average every week. Now, come on. Why would you fall for that? Uh, but for some reason, they put two quotes for number nine. I don't know why, but anyway, uh, Elizabeth Warren. Oh, my goodness, uh, the golden girl they're going after. Uh, her quote was, Auto dealer markups cost consumers $26 billion a year. The Democratic senators from Connecticut and Massachusetts, that being Murphy and Warren, both committed the same mistake, citing data from a clearly biased source because the data made their point. In Murphy's case, it was that even after the 2012 shootings at a Connecticut school that left 26 people, including 20 children, dead, the epidemic of school shootings has not decreased one bit because Congress has not acted on passing further gun laws. Well, that's just like it sounds like a statement that's backing up what he said, yet they just put it in this list of whoppers. I don't know. Nah. But, uh, yeah, I don't think there's been a school shooting every week. <laughs> but, uh... That's a strange. I don't know what they're doing here. Uh, and they don't really source what the, uh, the the true story is. Anyway, uh, for Warren, she used figures from a responsible lending group. And they put that in quotes, so I guess it's not really responsible. As part of her broader argument for more regulations and car dealerships lending practices. 
because people just can't figure out their own mathematics. But anyway, uh, they don't source that one either. But uh, by putting her in the list, I'm assuming they're saying she lied. Anyway, number eight, Mike Huckabee. Better known as Huckabee by some. <laughs> had to throw that in there. Anyway, his quote was, The science on climate change is not settled because in the 1970s, we were worried about global freezing. Huckabee seized on a few decidedly speculative magazine stories from four decades ago as an attempt to show that the current worries about the warming of the planet were, are, overblown. The problem? The vast majority of scholarship, even back in the 70s, suggested that the Earth was getting warmer, not colder. Well, you're not really giving the actual numbers of who said what. And guess what? Uh, the publication that talked about global cooling was the Washington Post. Yeah, yeah. It's funny they didn't mention that. But uh, it was a theory that was tossed around, and it's been around for most of the 20th century, and then it got dropped for the global warming theory. Um, and by the way, the people in the 70s that started out the global warming theory had predicted that uh, uh, my hometown would be underwater by t the uh, year 2000. <laughs> uh, I am not in a submarine. And that takes us to number seven, Barack Obama. Well, this ought to be good, huh? His quote, The Keystone Pipeline is for oil that bypasses the United States. This is, this is the worst whopper for Obama this year. Okay, they say so. Uh, anyway, Obama ultimately nixed the building of the Keystone Pipeline. But this debunked claim, which he used frequently in the spring, made clear which way he was headed on it. The idea pushed by Obama was that the oil transported through the U.S. wouldn't come back to help the country in any meaningful way, except not. Estimates indicated that less than half of the fuel made from the crude oil shipped to the Gulf Coast via the Keystone Pipeline would be exported. Lots of the automobile gas and diesel gas would have been used in the U.S. Yeah, so take that, Obama. Speaking of Obama, there's a certain somebody who wants to succeed him. That takes us to number six, Hillary Clinton. DOMA, the Defense of Marriage Act. Now, wait, I gotta do her voice. DOMA had been enacted to stop an anti-gay marriage amendment to the U.S. Constitution. <laughs> yeah. As part of an attempt to position herself as a longtime fighter for liberal causes, the former Secretary of State tried to cast her husband's signing of the Defense of Marriage Act as a way to keep even more discriminatory policies from being passed. Bill Clinton's decision, of course, had nothing to do with that. It was entirely aimed at positioning himself in the center of the country as he, pre as he prepared for his 1996 re-election race. Yeah, well, she, that's just a flat-out lie. <laughs> That's exactly why he signed that, uh, that law. And uh, it's funny about that because both Hillary and Obama ran on being uh, against gay marriage. And now all of a sudden, they were for it all along. <laughs> They're just cheap, empty suits. They stick their finger in the wind and figure it's going this way, that way. You know. Anywho. Uh, of course, if you're an executive for uh, Chick-fil-A or Mozilla, you know, boy, are you in trouble. Anyway, uh, number five, Donald Trump is the man of the hour or the year or whatever. Uh, Donald Trump said, The Mexican government is forcing criminals, drug dealers, and rapists into the United States. 
But this is where Trump's often distant relationship with the truth all began. Well, I don't know. <laughs> He's probably said some crap before that. But anyway, Trump's idea that Mexico was purposely sending rapists and drug dealers into the United States, presumably to get them out of Mexico. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> Uh, came about two-thirds of the way through his announcement speech, but soon became a rallying cry for voters attracted to Trump. It might have been a good thing politically for Trump to misrepresent the sorts of people Mexico sends to the U.S., but his comments and his broader campaign represent a massive problem for Republicans trying to win over Hispanic voters in the months and years to come. Well, I... I would have thought that the argument would be that Mexico is forcing rapists and drug dealers. That's not true. The idea that no rapists and drug dealers are coming in here, uh, that's bullshit. And, uh, and another thing to assume that uh, Hispanics don't, aren't troubled about uh, immigration or uh, open borders. It's, it's another one. That's kinda... But yeah, yeah, usually that block wants uh, uh, a little bit to immigration, but uh, the specifics are not exactly out of the jury yet. And uh, so this one, uh, yeah, uh, the Mexican government isn't necessarily uh, forcing criminals, at least not openly, it's not like an open policy or what have you, So, but uh, they're not really doing anything about stopping anybody leaving their country and going into America. That would be a truth way to put it, but uh, eh, it's Trump, what do you expect? So... Uh, good thing politically, but it's going to deny him votes from the Hispanics, so he can't win. I, you know, I, I don't really think this through. But anyway, yeah, uh, that it, ultimately that's not true, what he said. Uh, that takes us to number four, Rudy Giuliani. Obama never said the United States is exceptional or great. The former New York City briefly popped up as part of the national dialogue with this whopper. Based on absolutely zero facts, Giuliani was playing into a well-worn theme among conservatives and Obama haters. Well, at least they were nice enough to make a difference between the two. That the president just doesn't believe in America's exceptionalism like they do. The problem is that if they go by his public statements, Obama very much believes in that idea, except that he said it's exceptional like Japan thinks that Japan's acceptable and every other country thinks their country's which kind of defeats the point. So uh, this isn't exactly a lie. <laughs> I believe in American exceptionalism, just as I suspect that the Brits believe in British exceptionalism and the Greeks believe in Greek exceptionalism. Oh, boy. Uh, what did they say? Oh, yeah, this was bad political stick from someone you should know better. Yeah, well, you should know better because you're kind of misleading this point here, too. Number three, Donald Trump. Obama plans to admit 250,000 Syrian refugees. <laughs> no one, including the Post's fact checker, really knows where Trump got this. From his ass. <laughs> uh... One theory is that Trump conflated the possibility of accepting 185,000 immigrants from all over the world over the next two years with the number of Syrian refugees the Obama administration would allow into the country. President Obama has told his government to admit 10,000 Syrian immigrants over the next year, a far cry from 250,000. 
Hey, that's some good math there, Washington Post. Yeah, that's true. Uh, so far, Obama's has said 10,000, so Trump was, you know, <laughs> way off. Yeah, for Trump's purposes, of course, it doesn't matter what the facts are. A flood of Syrian immigrants into the U.S., some undoubtedly by his calculations, with very bad intentions, is just the sort of image to provoke fear and anxiety in already jumpy public. Well, why are they jumpy? You know? Boy, you really don't understand what war is, do you? Anyway, uh, yeah, he was wrong there. That's uh, 250000 like I said, well. Uh, this takes us to number two. And how in the world did this get into the Washington Post? Huh? The quote is, hands up, don't shoot. Yeah, you might recall that one. The idea that Michael Brown, the teenager shot to death by Ferguson police officer Darren Wilson, had his hands up at the time he was gunned down, became a potent symbol for the victimization of African Americans by police officers. Five St. Louis Rams players came out with their hands up before a game to show solidarity. So did members of Congress and your colleagues in the media as well. It turns out, according to multiple investigations, that Brown never had his hands up, despite some witness testimony that he might have. The hands up, don't shoot wasn't borne out by the facts doesn't change the realities of black men shot by police officers or the outrage and fear caused by these incidents. And it doesn't mean that other police shootings are discredited or somehow lessened or less than hurtful. But the fact that a lasting image of this American epidemic became an event that didn't actually happen is not good at all. <laughs> well, yeah, it makes a mockery of the real shootings. Yeah. Hmm. Well, and it's really not a good idea to praise a criminal, is it? Oh, well, you got to give him some credit for putting that in there, huh? Because you know it must have been hard. <laughs> well, anyway, let's end with number one. Oh, this must be the absolute worst one of the year. Worse than Hands Up, Don't Shoot and all the trouble that came from that uh, ordeal. Yes, this must be the absolute worst. Who could have made this the worst lie, I mean whopper, of the year? Number one, Donald Trump. I watched thousands and thousands of Muslims in New Jersey cheer as the World Trade Center fell. <laughs> Again, for a great businessman, uh, Donald's math sense is pretty deplorable. <laughs> I mean, if it was thousands and thousands, there would have been no doubt. Yeah, there were little scattered stories about a couple of people, and yes, in New Jersey, that there were some uh, Muslims you know, cheering it on. Uh, even Dan Rather had said this, uh, but uh, thousands and thousands <laughs> now. Uh, now there were a lot of uh, cheering and uh, celebrations for 9/11 overseas, you know, most notably Palestine, and uh, so maybe he got that mixed up. I don't know. Anyway, here's what they say about it. Maybe it's the recency effect. Trump said this last month, but man, oh man, is this a bad one? It for me is the prototypical case for the post-fact 2016 campaign. <laughs> Trump said he saw thousands of people celebrating. Contemporaneous reporting said that these celebrations didn't happen. Trump refused to back down and instead chose to go after one of the reporters involved in the initial reporting. His supporters believed him, and the media threw up its collective hands. <laughs> no, they didn't. They kept saying he was full of shit. <laughs> That's all you can do. Uh, but yeah, thousands of thousands. Yeah, he doesn't know what he's talking about. So there you go. There's the 12 whoppers. 
<laughs> from the Washington Post. Do people know how to think anymore? Or are we all just like Donald Trump just pulling stuff out of our ass? Or are we like the Washington Post cherry-picking this and kind of just forgetting this and that to make a point? Well, uh, we send our kids to college to learn stuff and learn critical thinking and to... Uh, no. Uh, do you, you, you hear lately they got these examples of uh, college kids don't believe in the First Amendment anymore because it's not a safe space and all that? And... Uh, just how bad is it? What are their values, and what examples can we choose from? I mean, would college kids ever turn on a a, a, a charity for, for kids with cancer? It couldn't possibly be, could it? Well, let's take a look. Student activists at the University of Kansas are claiming that a sorority selling candy canes to benefit children with cancer at the same time as one of the activists' protests was a racist microaggression against them. According to Twitter, the Delta 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 sorority was selling the candy when a student activist group, an improv, the racial climate on campus group, which calls itself Rock Chalk Invisible Hawk, came up and demanded that the members abandon the fundraiser and join them if they really wanted to do something to help others. Here's some samples of the uh, Twitter uh, tirade from Alex Kincaid at A. Kincaid. This was sent to at KU News. Do you see how the system is designed for at KU Tri-Delta to sell candy canes but not listen to POC at Rock Chalk Invisible Hawk? <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, here's another one from Kincaid at KU Tri Delta. Control your members. Now is not the time for laughing candy canes. Have you heard of microaggressions? Hashtag Rock Chalk Invisible Hawk. Now, to be fair, the protesters did clarify that they did not object to helping kids with cancer. It was just that the fact that they donated themselves should have been enough for the Tri Delts to stop the fundraiser and join their protest instead. Here's some more examples from Danica Christine at Danica CH. Y'all, at Invisible Hawks isn't about silencing philanthropy. I was there. I heard RCIH offer to buy all the candy so they could stand with them. Alex Kincaid. But yet we supported them, donated money, and when asked to join support students of color, we were met with nothing. Well, there you go racists. Of course, it would seem to me that even if the protesters did donate, they have totally been unable to understand why the sorority members would want to stay where they were and get even more donations. After all, aren't kids with cancer important to help? Apparently, the fact that these women seemed to think helping the terminally ill kids was more important than stopping to join the protest was exactly what the activists considered so unacceptable. Once again, Alex Kincaid. KU Tri-Delta cares more about philanthropy than hashtag Black Lives Matter. Hashtag Rock Chalk Invisible Hawk. Uh, Alex Villagran at Dr. Professor Alex. We shouldn't have continuously... He didn't write this very well. I guess he meant to say we shouldn't have to continuously affirm that identities matter. We shouldn't have to prove our lives are greater than one dollar candy canes. Hashtag Rock Chalk Invisible Hawk. Ha, <laughs>
What the hell? The sorority posted a statement on its Twitter account clarifying that their intention was solely to raise money for kids suffering from cancer and to not take away from the issue of oppression of marginalized groups or to appear racially insensitive. (sighs) Why do we have to put up with these assholes? Some people just like to bitch, and there's nothing you can do about it. Anyway, uh, that story was written by the lovely Catherine Timpf of Fox News and uh, National Review. And so just by being pretty, I'm going to side with her opinion. No, I'm kidding. I mean, yeah, she is pretty hot, but uh, yeah, she's, uh, she's right on this one. And then there's this. U.S. missed terrorist social media post on Jihad. The New York Times reported this weekend that U.S. officials approved San Bernardino murderer Tashveen Malik to immigrate to the U.S., even though she had gushed about Jihad on social media. Malik entered the U.S. on a K-1 fiancé visa and held a Pakistani passport. In order to receive the visa, an applicant must endure three background checks, each of which failed to catch Malik's social media posts. First, Homeland Security officials checked her name against American law enforcement and national security databases. Then, her visa application went to the State Department, which checked her fingerprints against other databases. Finally, after coming to the United States and formally marrying Mr. Farouk, she applied for her green card and received another round of criminal and security checks. Miss Malik also had two in-person interviews, the first by a consular officer in Pakistan and the second by an immigration officer in the United States when she applied for her green card. All those reviews came back clear, and the FBI has said it had no incriminating information about Miss Malik or Mr. Farouk in its databases. The State Department and the Department of Homeland Security have said they all followed policies and procedures. The departments declined to provide any documentation or specifics about the process, saying they cannot discuss the case because of con- the continuing investigation. Former FBI Executive Assistant Director Sean Henry said the visa program is muddled with fraud. We have heard about this fiancé visa, and I know the U.S. government has some concerns in that program. He told MSNBC there's a high percentage of fraud and that it is again another avenue potentially from people who want to do harm here to pursue. However, Malik's detailed and violent posts did not raise any flags. It appears immigration officials do not routinely review social media during their background checks. While the Department of Homeland Security cannot decide if they should make it part of the process. At National Review, Jonah Goldberg points out that the Times never explains why Homeland Security cannot come to a consensus on the topic. The article does not even explain what the Post said or why they are horrific. It's almost as if the Times is scared to actually report the interesting facts, what the Post said, why the government ignores them, and may want to keep ignoring them, etc., for fear of what people might do with the facts, writes Goldberg. Goldberg notes that the news article ends unusually, with words of caution, lest the reader draw the wrong conclusions about Muslims on social media. (laughs) How many people dead at the hands of this jihad crap, and they're still worried? about what some phantom uh, a racist or whatever is going to do. So far, we've got a firebombing at an empty mosque and a pig's head thrown in another one. Wow. Oh, my God. That's way worse than 14 dead. Uh, social media comments by themselves, however, are, are not always definitive evidence. In Pakistan, as in the United States, there is no shortage of crass and inflammatory language, and it is often difficult to distinguish Islamist sentiments and those driven by political hostility toward the United States. <laughs> At the t- <laughs> at the time, Fada Malik's Fada thought she was Tashin. What? 
at the time Fado Malik's comment was posted. Uh, Anti-American sentiment in Pakistan was particularly high. Four months earlier. Yeah, but then why bring them here? <laughs> Jeez. Four months uh, American commandos had secretly injured Pakistan and killed Osama bin Laden. Well, yeah, there's, there's a reason to bitch. You want somebody who's mad about that to come here? Uh, anyway, in, a, in addition to social media, the government has confirmed that authorities are searching for other red flags they missed. <laughs> Everyone's asking the same questions about how it is that law enforcement didn't know or intelligence officials didn't know that they could have flown under the radar and nothing gave an indication that they were a threat, said Representative Jen Langevin, a Democrat Rhode Island, member of the House Homeland Security Committee. Uh, FBI Director James Comey and others spoke with members of Congress in a closed-door briefing on Thursday. Representative William Hurd did not tell the media what evidence caused investigators to conclude that the couple had radicalized independently as early as 2013. It probably was all on their social media. But we can't look at that. Why, they just could have had a bad day and been in a bad mood. <sighs> Whatever. All right, going to take a short little break. Play some bits and little commercials. You know, important messages. And then we'll be right back with the news. He grabs it from the LeBron, and then he goes, Ha ha. (laughs) (laughs) To a fucking dog. Are you proud of yourself? You outsmarted a fucking five-year-old puggle that was laying on a big fucking pillow. When he falls asleep, I put his paw on his ass. <laughs> he put his paw on fucking warm water. I could, when I heard him go, ha ha, I was like, no. I, I, I thought maybe the dog might have said that. Uh, there's no way I thought it was fucking Kensel. No, Kensel, what he does, he takes a uh, little shaving cream, puts it in the dog's paw, and then tickles his face. <laughs> Not that trick again, Kensel. Uh, Kensel's plumbing, heating, and dog teasing. Lozano and friends. Eric Zorn from the Chicago Tribune. Yes. yes. This whole podcast thing is not new to you, right? I love podcasts. You're, I'm excited to hear about your network. Yeah. And uh, Well, it's I, not I my network. Let's make that clear. I'm just on the, the network. The network you're on. Yeah, I network, think you yeah, can yeah. say it's your network. Okay, I'll take it. Yeah. But anyway, so, so I mean, I, I really think I, I think that in, in 10 years, 15 years, terrestrial radio is going to be just gone. Yeah. The people are going to say, I don't want to listen to what, you know, what they want me to listen to at this time. I want to listen to what I want to listen to. On-demand listening, it's, it's getting easier. Easier and easier with all this technology we have. I think it's just the, it's the way it's going. And Mike Pesca has a good daily podcast on mm-hmm. Slate, and, and he makes the argument that most people don't listen on their iPods anymore. Most people don't have iPods right. anymore. They listen on their phones. They listen right. on all the various devices. And he just says it's radio. Because, yeah. you know, we don't, we don't say, well, if you're getting HBO, it's not television. If you, if you watch something on Netflix, it's not television. It's, it's television. So what, this, what we're doing here is radio. And it's just because it's delivered in, in a different medium doesn't mean it's not basically the same thing as radio. And the, and the, the term podcast, it sounds really weird to people. It sounds foreign. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, they, and they don't get it if you just say, I've got a radio show. Well, what station is it on? Well, it's on Balsano.com. Right. No, that's, that's not a radio station. Well, yeah, it is a radio station because that's, that's what radio has become. Right. You are cutting edge, my oh, friend, and man. so am I. Would you come on my podcast? Would I come on your what? Lasano <laughs> <laughs> and friends. Great talk radio isn't dead. It just moved to a better place. Radiomisfits.com. 
so life didn't turn out the way you'd hoped it would, huh? Yeah, that can really make you feel down in the dumps. But here's the good news. Now there's a show where you can listen to a man whose life has got to be more pathetic than yours. Yes, I'm talking about the Rob Zoll Show. Tune in and feel a little better about yourself because you're not Rob Zoll. Like the sound of my voice? Yes, you know you do. Well, why not watch old crappy movies with me, Mr. Nelson? Yes, you can watch old forgotten theater trash polished up by my brilliant commentary and sound effects. Films and movie serials like The Green Hornet, which concerns the adventures of a young newspaper publisher and his life partner. Yes, in their free time, they play dress-up, they wear masks, and ride around in a souped-up old jalopy while fighting crime. And it's only 90 cents! So head over to my video store at selfy.com slash Nelson. That's S-E-L-L-F-Y dot com slash N-A-I-L-S-I-N. Selfy.com slash Nelson. Get it? Once there, you can order some Nelson celluloid goodies today. Warning. Due to an extreme lack of talent, bathroom humor is deployed throughout the film. Hello there. Who the fuck are you? Well, I'm Mr. Gecko from Geico Insurance. And I'm here to tell you that our premium prices are second to none in cost-friendliness. Uh, hang on a minute. Uh, I want you to tell this to my cat. Uh, cat? Holy shit. That cat popped that limey lizard's head off like he was from ISIS. It's unbelievable. Geico. And now, it's time for the news! Imam Nadal al-Sayed forced to resign for supporting Trump Muslim ban. Texas Imam Nadal al-Sayed never thought supporting Republican GOP primary candidate Donald Trump's call for a temporary Muslim ban would cost him his job. But it has. The religious director of the Islamic Society of Triplex in Houston, Texas, went on Hannity two days ago and explain his reasons as to why Trump's ban is a good idea. I certainly see it to be wise that the U.S. government should stop temporarily accepting any new Muslim immigrants, refugees, and non-refugees into the United States, reiterated Nadal al-Sayed. But my justification to that is based on the fact that we can't hardly distinguish who is Muslim and who is not. Islam is not about an ID card or last name. As to Trump's plan, he noted that the controversial candidate is not against American Muslims. He is against any new Muslim immigrants, refugees, and non-refugees. There is a big difference here. We cannot be emotional. This prompted a call on Thursday from one of the Islamic Center of Triplex board members with the demand that he submit his resignation letter. But all al-Sayed called his firing a political maneuver because most of the people sitting on his board are Democrats. Sadly, it's Clinton versus Trump, he added. 
Since Trump issued calls for a temporary Muslim ban on travelers entering the United States, he has become a media pariah. Really? <laughs> a media pariah? I mean, good lord, that's all they ever do is show Trump. <laughs> if he was a pariah, they wouldn't show him at all. Anyway, but it has not seemed to affect his poll numbers. In fact, as of Thursday, per CBS News and the New York Times, he was polling better than he has in weeks, with a close to 20% advantage compared to the nearest Republican candidate. Nadal al-Sayed has been something of a media darling on the right side of the political aisle since issuing his initial statements and appearing on Hannity. Hardcore conservative Alan B. West hailed al-Sayed in a recent post and called on the media to give him more attention. After every terror attack, liberals always remind us that the perpetrators don't represent all Muslims, the blog stated. If they really believe that, why don't we hear more about Imam Nadal al-Sayed? And are there more Imams out there like him? The answer to that so far is probably, but they're not coming out of the woodworks. Running searches for Muslims who support Trump, Nadal al-Sayed is pretty much the only name that comes up. Of course, many on the left believe that the reason he is such a unique case is because of comments like this one. I wonder how much Trump is paying the guy. Conservative supporters like to point out that Trump isn't the first person who proposed a ban on a large group of people from entering the country. During his one term, President Jimmy Carter refused entry to Iranians and removed thousands of Iranian students. With Trump, there's a great deal of pushback not only due to the Muslim comments, but also due to his call for a border wall and some controversial early campaign remarks about illegal immigrants coming into the country from Mexico. Huh, wonder what that was. Anyway, recent finding, however, reveals that the border wall might not be necessary for Trump to get his way as more Mexicans are now leaving the country than coming in, according to a November report from Pew Research. As for Nadal al-Sayed, do you think his support for Trump will change the narrative surrounding the controversial Muslim ban. I don't know. Oh, well. I'm sure it'll all work out in the end. And now on to more serious stories. Butt-chugging cough syrup, a disturbing new trend amongst teens. A butt-chugger is one who consumes alcohol through his or her anus. The vessel for this alcohol enema can be a fun... Oh, God, this guy can't spell. The vessel for this alcohol, and he spells it fun all. Fun all. <sighs> Again, what kind of a news operation is this? <clears throat> I apologize. Let's begin again. A butt chugger is one who consumes alcohol through his or her anus. The vessel for this alcohol enema can be a funnel or a soaked tampon. Sound disgusting? There's a point to it. Alcohol is absorbed into your bloodstream faster through your rectum than through your mouth. Also, you don't get the smell of alcohol on your breath. But you do get it in your farts. <laughs> oh, oh, I apologize. Yes, yes. But teens who want to experience a different type of high are taking this trend to a whole different level. Butt-chugging cough syrup. It turns out that the, the dextromethorphan, DXM, a cough suppressant commonly found in over-the-counter cold medicines like Robitussin and Dimetap, produces an almost hallucinogenic high when chugged in large doses. 
It can also lead to loss of motor control, dizziness, seizures, and hallucinations among other serious problems. There's a popular image online of a girl going through this procedure of butt-chucking. We are not sure who she is, but imagine walking into a party and this is the first thing you see. And remember, kids, once it's on the internet, it's always on the internet. While the girl's identity is a mystery, she did post this comment on her Twitter feed. <laughs> well, I guess she's using a fake name. I mean, otherwise, how do they know it was her Twitter? Yeah, anyway, she did post this comment on her Twitter feed. It's hard to be a good wife and a good mom and a good Christian. Yeah. Well, that story was a buttload. And now, some gun news! A 68-year-old clerk was working at a Towson Wine and Spirits in Towson, Maryland, when two men entered and attempted to rob the store. One of the thieves drew a gun and pointed it at the clerk, who responded by retrieving a handgun from a drawer and shooting the criminal. The robbers fled the scene, but the wounded criminal collapsed and died just outside the store. <laughs> well done, store clerk. Well done. And that's the news. Now, stay tuned after these brief messages for another episode of Night Night. Oh, boy. What's the matter, Sally? I guess the beer just doesn't give me the buzz it used to. You need a butt chug. A butt chug? I'm not pouring beer in my ass. Not beer. Cough syrup. Here, let me flip you over. What? what? Oh, oh, oh. Oh, my. Oh. Let's move these panties aside. <laughs> and we'll insert this tube. Oh, ah. Oh. Here comes the cough syrup, Sally. Oh. Wow. The walls are melting. I see flowers taking flight and turning into stars. <laughs> Can't get a buzz? Then you need a butt jug. Warning, butt jugging may lead to brain damage, rectal rot, and or farts that smell menacingly. Saturday, December 26, 9 p.m. at the Comedy Cove, located above Scotty's Steakhouse in Springfield, New Jersey. Call 973-376-3840 or go to scottysteakhouse.com for tickets to see Bob Levy and more. January 31st, New Year's Eve, Animals Comedy Club. Nutley, New Jersey. Call 718-942-7368 or just go to animalcomedyclub.com. Friday and Saturday, January 29th and 30th. Three shows, Friday, 9 p.m., Saturday, 7.30 and 9.30 p.m. at Club Comedy in Nagatok, Connecticut. Yes, that's Nat Nagatok, Connecticut. Call 203-805-1855 or go to myclubcomedy.com for tickets to see Bob Levy and more. December 31st, New Year's Eve, see Joe Conti and Chris Johnston at Spring Street Pub and Grill, 144 Spring Street, Newton, New Jersey. Tickets and info go to jjcomedy.com. 
Sean Kensel will be at the Doylestown Comedy Cabaret on New Year's Eve for two shows called 215-345-JOKE. Ready, set, vent with Andy Lurie. In Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, Hunter Thompson refers to a moment when he was begging his buddy to throw the radio into the bathtub with him when it hit the peak moment at the end of the song White Rabbit by Jefferson Airplane. He's like, I want to die, and that's when I want to go out at that peak fucking moment, so throw the fucking radio in. That's a funny fucking way to go out. If you take anything from my podcast today, people, it's when you commit suicide, think of the music that you're going to be doing it to. And you don't want to do it to something fucking maudlin. You don't want to be like, oh, I'm going to play a real sad Doors song or I'll play Adele. Great talk radio isn't dead. When you kill yourself this holiday season, pick a good song. It just moved to a better place. Radiomisfits.com a lot of creepy, a lot of good-looking girls in this audience now. I got a fucking log in my underwear. That's right, I had a wooden cock. I was circumcised with a pencil sharpener. Our pal, the late, great Otto Peterson, is no longer with us. But his legacy of laughs lives on at autoandgeorge.com. There you can order Otto and George's new DVD slash CD in concert. And you can get his new T-shirt. Or anything Otto and George can be found at autoandgeorge.com The Bob Levy Show supports Warrior Point. Warrior Point, Inc. was created to be the number one rallying point for any and all veterans who have honorably served this great nation. It does not matter whether you served your time during peacetime, wartime, or if you're still serving. At Warrior Point, you can join the brotherhood of your fellow veterans and buttress one another, and to help raise awareness of the issues you face as defenders of our nation. You can follow Warrior Point on Twitter, at Warrior Point, like them on Facebook, and go to their site, warriorpoint.org, and all of these links can be found at RevBobLevy.com. Last episode, Night Night and Bubo were captured by the Mosquito Gang while said gang was stealing the Blood Ruby. Meanwhile, Smedley is handcuffed to a bed and at the mercy of the Blood Ruby's owner, slippery suppository heiress Madame Maud Slippington. She awaits her assistant James to perform homoerotic acts upon Smedley while she watches. Little does Slippington know, however, is that James is in cahoots with the Mosquito Gang. Now, a poisoned night-night finds himself on a piss-stained mattress in a grimy room within the abandoned warehouse headquarters of the Mosquito. Bubo, I... I think I'm feeling the effects of the poison. Uh, stop bellyaching. Mosquito said he wouldn't do shit for hours. It's been an hour, you asshole! The, the poison's gotta start somewhere. We've got to get out of here. But being ill, I might not make it. So you'll have to go first. Retrieve your weapons, Satchel, and summon the night cruiser via remote control. How am I going to do that? The door's locked. <laughs> you talentless, useless moron! Ah, oh, my ass! I ain't your ass. No, you idiot. 
There's a sharp stabbing pain in my ass. What vile potion of pain has the mosquito violated me with? Hey, when you rolled over, I could see a spring from the bed poke in your butt. <laughs> Cease your moronic muckery, you... Wait, the spring. Quick, Bobo, pull the spring out of the bed. No way, it's got your butt blood on it. Damn it! Here, I'll do it. There. Now we can use this to pick the luck of the door. And after a profanity-laced hour, Night Knight manages to get the door open. Now, quickly, Bubo, get your satchel and summon the... On second thought, you'd better bring it here and I'll summon the car. And soon, Bubo treads down a dimly lit hall, moving toward the main meeting room of the Mosquito Gang. So, at last, the Blood Ruby is mine. Yes, and the sooner you hand it over, the sooner I can sell it and collect my fee. I'll decide when the ruby's sold, and I'll pay you what we agree. Well, my friend, me and my associates disagree. Did you seriously think we would follow a man who dresses up like a bug? Now, hand over the ruby. Unfortunately for you, my gang is larger than is surrounding yours. What? Suddenly, Tickle Key's gang is showered in bullets from mosquitoes, man. Holy shit! Well, uh, Bubo's out. Uh, shoot him, boys. Panicked, Bubo turns tail and runs back down the hall from whence he came. But not before getting shot in the ass. <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> I got shot in the poo-poo. Yeah, whatever. Give me the satchel. There. Activated the homing beacon. Yeah, they're trying to get away. Yeah, shoot them. Yeah. Uh, we can't. We shot all of our bullets at Tickle Key's gang. Well, well use your fist. You're mad, aren't you? Well, I guess. Uh, uh, what do you mean, you guess? Uh... Well, sometimes I have these inner feelings and... What? Shut up and get those best idiots! And so, another round of brutal hand-to-hand combat erupts between Night Knight, the Bubo, and Mosquito's Gang. Suddenly, the fighting is interrupted by the sickening sounds of Night Knight's poison-induced sickness. Ooh, that's nasty! Ugh, I... I think it was a wet one. Uh, the Commissioner? Oh, where? No, boss. I think Night Night shit himself. Mm, well, then I guess the poison's taking effect. It should be easy pickings now, boys. Uh, finish him off. No way. You smell that? I don't want that stink on me. Suddenly, the scene is interrupted yet again by the night cruiser smashing through the wall, burning over most of Mosquito's men, and coming to a stop near Night Night and Bubo. Quickly, Bubo, get in the car! <laughs> Shut up and sit down! I can't sit down. I got a bullet in my butt. <laughs> then sit on your head. Must retrieve the blood ruby. Yeah, stop them. Uh, getting away with the blood ruby. Uh, I can't. My legs are broken. Ah, uh, shit. Uh, get out of the way. Uh... Boss, no! No, 
don't drive over me! Oh. Ah. And soon the chase is on as Mosquito in his van pursues the night cruiser. What? Well, stop sticking your bleeding ass up in the air. <laughs> My ass hurts. Getting dizzy. Must activate retro missile. There. Oh, oh no! <coughs> the night cruiser fires from its back and directly into the mosquito's van. Later, back at the rich man penthouse where we find Smedley, still handcuffed to Madame Slippington's bed. Get me out of this shit, you crazy bitch! Don't knock it till you try it! Oh, look who's here! It's James! Wh what are you doing, James? Why are you packing your bags? Because I'm through with you. My payday came in and I'm out of this shit. Oh, thank God. James! You don't mean that! Yeah, I do. Now move your fat ass out of my way. No, James! I won't let you go! Suddenly, Madame Slippington lunges forward, colliding with James, sending both her and James out the window and down to their splattery demise. Holy shit! Oh, what? What? what the hell? I... Never mind. We need your help. And soon Smedley is freed, and Night Knight is attended to. As it turns out, Night Knight's fear led him to vomit and defecate the poison out of his body, thus saving his life. It's a damn good thing the mosquitoes scared the shit out of you. <laughs> Nonsense, Smedley. I know my own body, and I knew what to do. You mean your body knew to do-do its way out of death? <laughs> Shut up, Smedley. Hey, what about my ass? <laughs> <laughs> Thus ends another amazing adventure of Night Night. Be here next week for a brand new adventure. This has been a Nailsin production. The Night Night theme song is performed by Alistair White and his lovely wife, Heather. Incidental music is courtesy of Kevin McLeod. All characters are performed by me, Douglas Nelson. Join us again, won't you? Inbred, a delicious loaf of 10% wheat and 90% Caucasian trash. From the Levy Land Bakeries in the Sunshine State of Florida. I saw a market in Florida for a certain unfortunate breed of human, and I thought I'd help him out and make a buck, you know? With one look at the map, Bob saw Florida sitting there like an old abused discarded sock hanging off the continental United States, and so he decided to break some bread. Look, I understand your cousin was hot and one thing led to another and now you got a jellyfish in the crib. So hey, give him a sandwich. You know what I mean? Mmm, inbred. Because once you've made your white bread, you might as well eat it.
And now, it's time for another episode of Perhaps, but maybe not. This story centers around an article written by Carol Brown for The American Thinker. It's called Muslim Inbreeding. Inbreeding is common in Islamic culture. It's been going on since Muhammad sanctioned first cousin marriages 1,400 years ago. I guess there's nothing like getting marriage advice handed down from one generation to the next that originated with a lunatic pedophile. <laughs> Jeez, Carol, I wouldn't do any traveling around the Mediterranean or Middle East anytime soon. PJ Media reports that because Muhammad encouraged inbreeding, many Muslims regard intermarriage as part of their religion. First cousin marriages are also viewed as a source of social status, as a means of keeping wealth within the family, and as a form of control. In addition, it is a vehicle to safeguard families against the influence of non-Muslim outsiders, which contributes to insular communities that do not integrate into Western society. So just how many Muslims are inbred? A lot! As written in a seminal report by Danish psychologist Nikolai Sinnels, half of the world's Muslims are inbred as a result of consanguous marriages. So we're talking about one billion inbred Muslims and rising. Really? <laughs> Inbreeding is more common among Muslims living in Islamic countries compared to those living in the West. But even among those in the West, the numbers are shockingly high. Sinel states that more than half the Pakistanis living in the UK are married to first cousins. Her an article at Bare Naked Islam. <laughs> Although Pakistanis account for 3% of births in the UK, they make up of 33% of children born with birth defects in the country. In addition to increased risk of genetic disorders, IQ is negatively affected. Normal IQ averages around 100. Low intelligence is set at 85 or 90. Mild disability at 70 to 79. And moderate disability at 50 to 69. Studies show that inbred children have an average IQ of 79. One study showed a 400% increased risk for inbred children having an IQ lower than 70. The normal risk for having a child in this IQ range is 1.2%. That risk jumps to 6.2% when children are inbred. Not surprisingly, children with low IQ are far more likely to drop out of school and have limited job skills, resulting in limited prospects for employment. In addition, inbred individuals are at risk for a wide range of developmental abnormalities that result in poor social skills and lack of empathy, among other things. Inbreeding also results in a significantly higher percentage of stillbirths, as well as increased risk of mental illness, including schizophrenia and criminal insanity. Hey, maybe Joe Conti had a point about all these uh, terrorists being nothing but a bunch of nuts. <laughs> All of these risks intensify as one generation after another inbreeds, compounding genetic abnormalities. And we're 1400 years in with no end in sight. That's 50 generations worth of inbred Muslims. When you combine an Islamic holy book that teaches hate with rapid inbreeding, there is no doubt that Islamic culture is subpar, to put it mildly, and not compatible with Western values and modernity. And yet, this 
intellectually, physically, and spiritually compromised population continues to advance around the globe, gaining ground with each passing day. How can that be? For all of our intellectual, spiritual, and cultural superiority, perhaps we are the fools after all. Well, we gotta make some babies. <laughs> it's probably too late. Well, just how true is this phenomenon? Well, back in May of 2011, a Professor Steve Jones found himself on the hot seat. Yes, Professor Steve Jones from University College London said the common practice in Islamic communities for cousins to marry each other increased the risk of birth defects. There may be some evidence that cousins marrying one another can be harmful. He told an audience at the Hay Festival. We should be concerned about that, as there can be a lot of hidden genetic damage. Children are more likely to get two couples of a damaged chain. Bradford is very inbred. There is a huge amount of cousins marrying each other there. Studies have shown that 55% of British Pakistanis are married to first cousins, and in Bradford, this rises to 75%. Other research has found that children of first cousins are 10 times more likely to have recessive genetic disorders and face deafness, blindness, and infant mortality. But Professor Jones's comments provoked anger among some Muslim groups. Gee, you think? Mohammed Shafiq, chief executive of the Ramadan Foundation, which promotes the image of Muslims in Britain, said, I know many Muslims who have married their cousins, and none of them had a problem with their children. Obviously, we don't want any children to be born disabled who don't need to be born disabled, so I would advise genetic screening before first cousins marry. But I find Steve Jones' comments unworthy of a professor. Using language like inbreeding to describe cousins marrying is completely inappropriate, and further demonizes Muslims. So, I guess the cousins are marrying. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, we'll just change the definition of the word inbreeding and that'll make it okay. Concern about the risk to children from first cousin marriage has been described as the last great taboo. Well, I think there's a few others. That... Anyway, former Environment Minister Phil Woolis was rebuked by Downing Street in 2008 for saying British Pakistanis are fueling rates of birth defects by marrying their cousins, with the spokesman for then-Prime Minister Gordon Brown saying the issue was not one for ministers to comment on. Mohammed Salim Khan, chief executive of the Bradford Council for Mosques, said, It is important to discuss these issues, but I just do not know of any firm evidence backing up Professor Jones' claims. I think we need more conclusive studies so that we can know for certain if there are any genuine risk. Marriages between cousins is certainly common within South Asia, but it is becoming less so in Britain and also in Bedford. Islam allows you to marry anyone you want, so in many ways, Islam promotes diversity. <laughs> hey! Yeah, um, no gay marriage. In his talk, Professor Jones said inbreeding was not confined to Muslims and historically had occurred in every part of society, including the royal family. He said, We are all more incestuous than we realize. In Northern Ireland, lots of people share the same surname, which suggests a high level of inbreeding. There's a lot of surname diversity in London, but if you look at the Outer Hebrids, there are rather fewer surnames in relation to the number of people. So, is the answer to the woes of Islam brought about by inbreeding? Are they simply not as distracted enough by goats and, apparently, young boys? And, if there is a remake of Deliverance, should it be reset in the Middle East? Perhaps, but maybe not.
Alright, that sounds like a wrap. Time to turn out the lights here at RadioMisfits.com and close the door on this episode of The Mr. Nelson Show. Merry Christmas, everyone, and good night. The views and opinions expressed during the Mr. Nelson Show do not necessarily reflect those held by RadioMisfits.com. So, any complaints and or comments should be sent to at Mr. Nelson on Twitter, where they will be promptly ignored and or blocked.